A quick heads up. In this series, we talk about drug use, mental health issues, and there's a bit of swearing. Welcome to the Brett Whiteley studio. Have you been here before at all? I'm Fenella Kernerbone, and this is Art, Life and the Other Thing. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was made, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. In this series, I sit down with some of Australia's most exciting contemporary artists and curators at the Brett Whiteley studio to talk about his work and how it's impacted their own careers. In each episode so far, we've focused on one of Brett's artworks. And by looking at that work, we've unpacked bigger issues about the wider Australian arts landscape. Well, in this final episode, we're talking about one of Brett's greatest works and one of his biggest and I mean in scale, but also in terms of ambition, intention and legacy. It's a piece that he had several attempts at over the years, and it took him a long time to finish what we now see hanging in his Surrey Hills studio. I'm talking about alchemy. This is a painting that's so large, it actually goes around the corner of the gallery space. It's a very ambitious painting. This is Anne Ryan, curator of Australian art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It's the painting of a, of a young artist in his 30s who's really of the belief that art can change the world. He'd just come back to Australia after living in New York for a period of time where he had tried to paint a similarly ambitious painting that failed. It was a, it was a, a personal and artistic point of crisis for him. It ended up with him retreating from the Great Art Centre of New York, coming back to Australia and having to recalibrate and reassess. The painting is made up of 18 separate wood panels. It's big, 16 metres long in total. And it's full of Brett's signature confident flowing brushstrokes, along with an assortment of symbolic ephemera. To see the piece online, go to agnsw.art forward slash BWS podcast. Like much of his work, it's really very much about him and it's autobiographical. It's read from right to left, but equally you could read it from left to right. So it's a, it's a painting that you can journey along and find all sorts of stories. It's not just a painting, of course. There's all sorts of elements in this picture, including stuffed birds, magazine collage, uh, electric light. There's even a little window containing some of his own hair. If you read the work from right to left, we have a blue watery world and an image of conception of, of, of sort of a carnal image of the beginnings of human life right through to the end where we end up with an ethereal abstract white almost wind-like form on a golden background quite oriental looking in aesthetic but as you journey through the picture you, you see all these little clues as to the things that made him tick. There are artistic references to artists that were meaningful to him, such as Vincent van Gogh, Francis Bacon, um, Hieronymus Bosch, great Flemish painter who's endlessly fascinating. 
You can find references to the Australian landscape, the landscape beyond the Blue Mountains, the, the area where he went to school around Bathurst, the, the, the sort of yellowy, dry, grassy rural landscape of Australia. You can see references to musicians, politicians. There are, there are so many little clues throughout this work to the key ideas and influences and obsessions that, that drove his work, particularly around this time. Painted over 11 months in 1972, this is very much an autobiographical work. Wendy Whiteley points out that even the baby in alchemy looks like Brett. It's a kind of portrait of Brett's life, really. There's the conception, there's, you know, the birth which is obviously him being born with a red little red-headed baby. Though if a baby had been born with all of that hair, it would have been remarkable. But um, And then we, we just go through it. It's a painting that needs to be looked at from a distance first and then to be moved right in close up to it so that you start to see all the, the details, which are often quite surreal in the sense of being very influenced by Bosch's Garden of Earthy Delights, little things from the mind and references to people Brett either admired or hated. Another self-portrait with a little door that gets covered up. There's a plug with, which implies the whole thing could go down the plug hole at one stage. However, it's an extraordinary picture. It's um, And I think the more you look at it, the more you get involved in the actual what's going on in it when you get up close the more you're able to like it. You know, it's, it's really, it's a trip. It's, a, it's an organised excursion. He had a theory that the best way to have a, have a life story told would be for him as an artist would be to have a three-mile-long gallery. So you just started at the beginning of a life and went to the other end. This is a kind of smaller version of that idea. And it's interesting to watch people actually walking along the front of it and what catches their attention and what draws them into it like a magnet to peer very closely at what goes on with it. So you can see people actually living the living the experience as well, which is interesting because everything it refers to is still going on today and went on thousands of years ago and will go on forever. It's, you know, love, hate, the beauty of the landscape, the fears of... of everything going on in one's personal life and relates to everybody. I think it's both very intensely personal, but it also relates to most people looking at it. It's a language that's understandable in the end. Barry Pearce, the former curator of Australian art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, once wrote that Brett Whiteley was envious of the power of pop musicians and he dreamt of alchemy reaching a mass audience. Currently, the piece is on display in the corner across two walls at the Brett Whiteley studio in Surrey Hills. It needs a big space to exhibit it. But Barry Pierce says alchemy should in fact be displayed on a curve. I'm burning for that painting to be shown in a proper way because, you see, he was on about endlessnessism and what makes, what is the place of infinity in our way of thinking about life and art? And he painted alchemy on an arc, on a curve. He was on about Einstein's theory of relativity, that if you go out into space, you don't follow a straight line, you actually go on a curve. And what happens if you stay on the path of a curve for an, a long, what's 
say an infinite, but a long time, you come back to where you started. And what he wanted to do with alchemy was have a narrative going from birth to death and enlightenment. On the left, you see all the sexual thing, the birth pains. And on the other end, it's based on Mishima, a Japanese painting about enlightenment. And when we're through and done, we see gold, the gold of enlightenment all around us. It's like like a view of heaven, I suppose. But if they hung it like it was meant to be on a curve, then if you follow that line at either end, either end in your imagination will meet again. So, and that's infinity. And it's endlessnessism. And that's what that painting is all about. What are you seeing in alchemy? What is he trying to convey? Well, well, well it's, it's like the Baudelaire idea that, you know, to get to heaven, you have to go through hell. I mean, Baudelaire said, you know, flowers grow from shit, you know. like, And so it's, it's about all the pain and the violence in the world. And you go through it and you go through it. And finally, if you can get through it, if you can get your way through it, you you come out into enlightenment and a peaceful view. It's a very, I suppose, a traditional, it's like a religious kind of picture in, in some ways. It's uh, but a, a kind of a secular <laughs> religious picture, if you can, if that's possible. Um, it, it it's a, it's a it's a journey, and the journey of the painting as a painting is that the beauty of it is you can go back and forth either way. You don't have to start with birth and then finish up with the end, the end of days, I suppose it is, um, through all the nightmare and the pleasures and everything in between, you, you can actually track back. And that's, it, t- it tells us about, uh, Brett thinks history has much to tell us. Considering where Brett fits within the culture of the all, pantheon. the pantheon of Australian art, where do you think he sits within our, uh, the cultural landscape? He He delivers us very brave ideas about what it means to be alive, and that you know the, the the pleasure and pain of 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 life, you know, and I think there are artists who can give us the pleasure in small things, and if you're lucky, you can bring them both together. Brett had this romantic kind of idea about painting that if you if you are bold and you have a serious purpose, you can achieve something that's good for the world, good for people. In that sense, what the challenges he faced. And he had the guts to do it, even against a lot of hatred and envy. For me, puts him up very high in the pantheon. He, he persisted. He did persist. But as we've spoken about already in this series, it came at a cost. To understand more about what was going on in the background for Brett at the time of making Alchemy, here's Anne Ryan again. He's an artist trying to change the world, and he thought he could do that through art. And a lot of artists, especially young artists, think that that's possible. They think that that art has the potential to change the world. Most of the time it doesn't. Mm. (laughs) But you can't fault the ambition of this work and it's it's to sustain something over such a scale is enormously difficult. So the thing that comes out of this is not just the ambition but also the raw talent of this artist and the kind of hard work and thought that went into an object like this is, 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 is fascinating. Why was he so impacted, do you think, at the time to want to create a work such as this? What was really going on for him at the time? Brett Whiteley made this work having had his wings clipped a bit. He got success 
internationally very young. He was extremely talented, but he was also extremely fortunate in being at the right time and meeting the right people and having the right personality to get his work in front of an audience that for Australians at that time really mattered, and that was in England. And his work got picked up by institutions really early. It was collected by the Tate, which was the big, important contemporary collecting institution in London at the time, in his early 20s, almost unheard of. So he had a start unlike most other artists as a young man, and I imagine it would have really boosted his confidence at a time when he was still trying to work stuff out. So he had this moment of great success and great creativity and a great flourishing of his voice, a kind of development of his voice. And he goes to New York thinking, okay, I've made it in London, now I've got to make it in the centre. And that was New York. And he failed. And he tried to make this big picture while he was there that would solve the problems of America. It would, it would make America and therefore the world kind of figure out what was going on and sort of a, a kind of a, a fool's errand, if you like. The failure of that picture was concurrent with difficulties in his personal life. He was married to Wendy. They had a small daughter and they were making a life over there, but he was sinking into um, drinking too much and getting involved with stuff that wasn't helping his work and certainly wasn't helping his family life. So it was a really a, a, a crisis moment for him. He left, he, he pretty much just upped and left New York and disappeared, went to Fiji, and Wendy was left to kind of tidy up the life and move the family to follow him. Had to leave Fiji uh, and had to come back to Australia. And really, I think it was at that moment when he came back here and he thought, right, I'm from here, this is my place, this is, I've got to make work about this place. And so it's kind of where he felt he had to start on a new path and this picture is like a, a very loud declaration of that. We know now that Brett made it work here in Australia, artistically at least. Alchemy is firmly part of the Australian canon. But what did people think of it at the time? Well, nobody had ever seen anything quite like it. And when it was shown commercially in Sydney after it was made in 1973, it was shown with a whole bunch of other materials, notebooks and things, his thoughts, his ideas, quotations, a lot of which didn't make sense. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of what he wrote was, was for, for a reader that wasn't him, is hard to understand or fathom. And some of it feels really deep and some of it feels a bit shallow and it's like because he just got it all out there and wrote it all down and he used to have the the exhibition openings he used to have at the time were events they were happenings you know there'd be all sorts of things going on so of course people thought it was amazing of course it's the kind of picture which is really really hard to deal with you can't buy it for your house you can't you can't stick it above the fireplace you can't doesn't match my couch it's, it's bigger than most museum walls. Yeah. So it's, it's a kind of a problem as well. And so having the ability to, to display it in this form in the Brett Wiley studio in Sydney is a rare thing. 
you know, it, it, it demands a lot of space. Some artists kind of demand a lot of space and this picture certainly does that. So how does Brett Whiteley's legacy sit within Australia's contemporary art landscape? And how do Australia's contemporary artists view this legacy? Many of the artists who we've spoken to in this podcast studied Brett Whiteley at school. In fact, lots of school students did, even I did when I was at high school. One of those is Abdul Abdullah, who we spoke to in episode four. As a seventh-generation Australian Muslim, his work tackles the big themes of what it means to be Australian in a contemporary, multicultural landscape. Brett Whiteley was the the first artist I would introduce to when studying art in high school. Uh, he was like he was the Australian name that we were all familiar with, and we all had some idea of the type of work that he produced. And did you like his work growing up? Can you remember your feelings about his work, if you had any? I certainly had an aesthetic connection to his work. It, it's, it's an interesting story because that relationship has shifted and changed. The first thing that I was introduced to were his his zoo series or the ink drawings of the zoo series. And I remember particularly a, a, a drawing of a, like a, it would have been a baboon, like a very angry looking baboon that I looked at in high school and was quite enamored by. And, and that image has stuck with me ever since, I think. What is it about the image, the fact that it's just so visceral, angry, whatever? Yeah, there's a way that he painted it. I think the brush marks, it, it, the way it was almost a caricature of a baboon, but it was yeah, very aggressive in the way that the baboon was, was reacting, I guess. And I hadn't seen much drawing like that outside of comic books and that sort of thing. So I guess that was an appeal for me, especially like when I was like 13 or 14 when I was looking at it. Abdul's recognition in the art world has some similarity with Brett's. He's a five-times finalist of the Archibald Prize, a finalist of the Wind Landscape Prize and Sulman Prize, and he won the Blake Prize in 2011. So what does he think when he looks at alchemy? Looking at it, it's sort of, it's hard not to relate it to recent works that I've done. So I had a show at the, at the Armory Show in New York at the beginning of the year, which was a, a multi-panel work that went across three walls sort of all-encompassing in a similar way that alchemy is exhibited. And there was a correlation in the way that, that it was made. It's interesting because if you think about alchemy and you think about a, a, you know some of his other works, obviously, but alchemy is a, a case in point. You know, it, it has a lot of mixed mediums that is in it. He's drawn on it. He's put sculptural bits on it. You know, the whole kit and caboodle, as they say, um, is part of it. And that's something that you also do to a degree. Yeah, I guess like oh, I really appreciate the freeness in the way that he produces work, like the the fact that he feels like unencumbered by a particular medium and he can move across things. And I, what I can really appreciate is the idea of him wanting to communicate an idea and and not being limited in the way that he's going to communicate. Like he's, he's still working on a, like a 2D surface with sculptural form, but that, that there's there's a freeness to the way that he works that I, that I really like and you know, I can really relate to in the way that I produce work. I like to sort of have an expanded practice in terms of materials and, and not feel sort of tied down or totally made or attached to, to specifically paint. When you look at a work like Alchemy, it's clear that Brett's trying to get something down on the canvas, or rather a whole lot of things down. It's his story, his legacy. Of course, that's now interpreted through the lens of the current cultural landscape. So as a contemporary artist, I'm curious to know where Abdul thinks Brett and his legacy fits today. That's a really interesting question because I think there's good and there's bad. And this is only theorising. Like, again, I'm not telling you how how it is 
I don't know how it is, but I've got plenty of theories about it and I've thought about it a lot about about the legacy of an artist like Brett Whiteley. And it's it's difficult to to separate the man from the from his practice. So to isolate those paintings and go, this is what they're about, it's hard not to to include his life as context for that work. But on the other hand, his legacy as an Australian artist is sort of that lineage has gone in all sorts of different ways through art schools and the way that people approach. Like I have to like looking at his ink drawings of those animals, like that that is still stuck with me. And like every Australian artist that I know has been sort of at least if not directly influenced, there's an implicit influence in the way that they they make their work as the Australian artist. There's also that dangerous legacy of this is what an Australian artist is, this sort of tortured genius, and this is what you have to be to be an artist, which I think is pretty archaic. That was really interesting, this idea that to be an artist and to have legacy, you have to be kind of tortured. Tell me a bit about what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, like like thinking about the legacy of Brett Whiteley and and that perception in Australia of what an artist should be or how an artist should behave um, and how you have to be that tortured genius to sort of express yourself. And for the audience, there's this voyeurism voyeurism that's attached to it where you're you're seeing almost a person spiralling or or behaving in a way that either they wish they'd want to behave like or they could behave like or just out of like sort of watching a, a rock star damage themselves and and they need to be that damaged to create this genius work but for me even the idea of genius is is really problematic that idea of someone being elevated intellectually or otherwise above everyone else is is i think at its very base kind of wrong and and as far as legacy it's hard to say with established australian artists but like i've you know spend a lot of time in different art schools and it's funny seeing like especially young male painters like uh, mirroring him and his, the you know, the way that, that he painted, the craziness, the hair, everything about him, that was um, who they wanted to be and who they thought they had to be. But I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to communicate and I don't know how that fits in a 21st century context. Like I, I think we are uh, responsible. Uh, responsible is a, not that people then had any less responsibility, but we are certainly responsible for everything that we say and that we do. Do you think we need to create a new legacy? And if we do, what kind of new legacy would you could you imagine? A new legacy. I think artists like Richard Bell are creating a new legacy for how Australian art is seen, especially how Australian art is seen from the outside. Richard Bell is an Aboriginal artist from, from Brisbane. Uh, he's one of the founding members of a, co- a collective called Proper Now, which I think is the best group of artists, the best group of artists in the country. Uh, he works uh, mostly with painting, but he's also done a lot of video and installation. He's uh, he's travelled a, a, a tent embassy, which is a, an, an artwork, but also uh, a point of, of protest. He calls himself an activist masquerading as an artist, and I, I really like that. Like I like. His visual literacy, his visual language is not something that can be co- copied. And, and it's like, as me, like I, I see him as a mentor, but I'm not trying to emulate his practice or his language or his style or anything like that. I just see him as sort of like a, a, someone that I can look up to in the way that in the way that he practices. And I think that he's got a lot to offer to the Australian conscience. For me, he's the best. Richard's having an exhibition at the Tate Modern uh, either next year or the year after. And Brett Whiteley was acquired by the Tate Modern, but I can't think of an Australian artist who's had a solo presentation at a space like that. I even joked around with Richard, like, 
that there's an Australian in Venice every two years, but there's never been an Australian at the Tate Modern. So like this is this is a for me Aurora legacy of Australian art. What Richard represents, his life experiences and and his how he articulates that Australian experience and that uniquely Australian experience. I think that is really, really valuable and valuable to how Australian art is perceived going into the future. And I and I, and I think without that context, and it's hard because like, like I said, I don't know Brett Wiley. I don't like I don't know his personal experiences, but it's it's hard to see a, a art that was made in Australia or art that was made by an Australian artist in the sixties and seventies that didn't explicitly or even in my eyes, implicitly consider like an indigenous experience, or like it's it's sort of it it seems to be a big part of the puzzle that's missing, and that's very frustrating. And then when you see Australian artists now from that generation who are still working, who are dismissive of Aboriginal practices, like the artists in the Win Prize, I think John Olson said that he can consider them like landscape. That sort of thing is, is yeah, it's hard not to be cynical. Brett Whiteley's legacy is inescapable. His images are ubiquitous and his paintings recognisable to many Australians. But his biographer, Ashley Wilson, says Brett himself was always struggling with that question of where he would fit within the history or legacy of art, often referencing his own mentors and influences within his own paintings. Brett was very conscious of his role in the... uh, in the journey of art and in the timeline of art in general, Australian art and art globally. He was very conscious of the Australian art tradition and he was very conscious of being a part of it. And the responsibility and the weight of carrying that, you know, was very heavy upon him. And he he was a great student of history, of art history, and he, he knew where the the heroes of the past, his his visual heroes of the past, it was acutely conscious and respectfully aware, I think, of 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 jumping into that timeline. And uh, so his relationship with Lloyd Rees at the end of Lloyd's life, at a personal level, but especially at an artistic level, was profound. But really early in. Um, Brett's career when he was still in Sydney. He decided to go to Sofala one day, a big boozy um, weekend probably with a couple of mates, Michael Johnson and others, and he created a picture which is called Sofala. But in doing so, he was very consciously putting himself in an artistic tradition. As someone who has spent a great deal of time studying and writing about Brett, not as an historian or a critic, but as a writer and a journalist, Ashley has his own ideas about Brett's legacy. You know, it's always for other people to assess his own significance and legacy. But I think what's important is that his his life story, and this is funny for a, a biographer to say, but is r- largely relevant to some extent, uh, is irrelevant without... The, without the presence of his art. Because if we were just talking about a um, charismatic drug addict who had a number of famous friends, it would have a a limited interest, but an interest all the same. But the fact that he still captures the imagination of so many people is, is, is not something to be ignored and it speaks to the enduring legacy of his work. And if we're going to continue to, to, to talk about him, think about him and, and, 
think of him as, in, as an important figure, then it will be on the basis of his work and not his life that that happens. One of the things that I like about him and about his legacy is that you can hardly help wandering past Sydney Harbour on a rainy day or a sunny day or either way. It doesn't even need to be outside Lavender Bay. But when you just notice out of the corner of your eyes the streaks of white at the back of the ships going past or a bird flying past and you realise that you're kind of looking at a, at a white light coming to life and it's like the, the landscape bending to his vision. It seems fitting that rather than leaving behind a, a written autobiography, Brett instead left us with an artwork to tell the story of his life. And like the man himself, the artwork is incredibly complex, slowly drawing you in to show you a world filled with joy and turmoil. In keeping Brett's legacy alive, his mother, the late Beryl Whiteley, established and generously allocated funds to administer the Brett Whiteley Travelling Art Scholarship. Its goal is to encourage excellence in painting, but it's also about offering young artists the same opportunity to develop their careers as were afforded to her son. The scholarship is a painting prize for artists aged between 20 to 30 with an established body of work who are best able to demonstrate the use and benefit of the scholarship to further their art education in Europe. If you want to find out more information about that scholarship, head over to the studio website. While some parts of Brett's legacy may be best left in the past, his works and the impact of his art will always hold a special place for many of us. And I'm sure that his way of approaching art will continue to inspire future generations of young Australian artists, pushing them to follow in his footsteps to create art that continues to push the boundaries. Brett Whiteley is part of the canon of Australian art. If there is such a thing, I think there still is. So he's an artist that will be remembered as an historical figure. I have found when I've looked at artists from the past that there is this situation where an artist is contemporary, then they're no longer relevant, then they're historical, then they're rediscovered. And I think that Brett Whiteley and his work will be part of that trajectory. I think there are generations of, of young people who don't know his art, like my generation did when he was alive. The great thing about the studio, of course, is that people can discover him for the first time or return to him as a familiar friend. And so I think his legacy, because the highest points of his career were iconic works in the story of Australian painting, he will always have that place. But his relevance will depend on each successive generation and how they respond to what he does. Thank you to this episode's guests, Wendy Whiteley, Anne Ryan, Abdul Abdullah, Barry Pierce, and Ashley Wilson. Throughout this series, we've talked to Brett's family, peers, curators, writers, and contemporary artists. But still, we've only peeled back a small layer of the Brett Whiteley catalogue to explore the alchemy that goes into creating great works of art. 
So if you want to find out more, the best thing you can do is head into the Brett Whiteley studio yourself. It is incredible to see those works up on his walls where he used to live and work and create art. You can visit Brett's studio in Sydney from Thursday to Sunday. Admission is free. This podcast was recorded live in the Brett Whiteley studio in Surrey Hills. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which the Brett Whiteley studio stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. From our location here in this art museum, it is important to acknowledge those sites that stood before. The Sydney region has more rock engravings than any other city in Australia. Some of these sites depict an intimate knowledge of the stars, seafaring relationships with Pacific neighbours and complex social systems. Many more have been desecrated and lost beneath shopping centres, roads, houses. As we cherish and protect those works that hang on gallery walls, so too should we be advocating for the awareness, maintenance and protection of some of our nation's oldest art forms. Thank you to the Brett Whiteley Foundation and the benefactors of the Brett Whiteley Studio who have made this podcast possible. Concepts, themes and episodes were developed by Michaela Angeloni, Aliko Dash, Alec George and Jennifer Macy. The producer is Jennifer Macy with production assistance by Aliko Dash and Lizzie Jack. Production supervision by Leonie Jones. Special thanks to Lucy Law, Holly Forrest and Grace Crivellero and Audiocraft for production support. The Brett Whiteley Studio is managed by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Free admission is made possible by JP Morgan. For more information about the Brett Whiteley Studio, you can go to their website where you can listen to audio guides of current exhibitions. Go to artgallery.nsw.gov.au forward slash Brett hyphen Whiteley hyphen studio. Art Life and the Other Thing is brought to you by the Brett Whiteley Studio in collaboration with the Art Gallery of New South Wales. My name is Fenella Kernerbone. It's been wonderful being your host. Thanks for joining me. Listener.